Hi, it's G3, and welcome to part two of Jordy's and my conversation with AI expert and all-around great guy, Sultan Meji. So please, check important disclosures at the end of the episode and get ready to continue to go deep on the intersection of AI and longevity. And with that, welcome. Can we talk about mushrooms? Can we? You know that it's been part of my life for a long time, so. All right, well, before you talk about that, I have a question for you both. How closely related are mushrooms and human beings at a DNA level? So from a DNA perspective, mushrooms are just much closer to humans than they are plants. That's one of the reasons why I started eating them every day or taking supplements every day four years ago was the acknowledgement of A, how important they are. Secondly, how life, I mean, they are the consumers of death. They eat death and they're natural composters, which leads to new life and how much we've lost that as Sultan and I both know. In fact, he has some family involvement in this too, about what's happened to soil in the world and the country and just how important mushrooms are because they normally are the ones breaking down the soil and breaking down the plants. And if they didn't exist, when a tree dies and it's in your yard, it wouldn't go anywhere. It would just sit there. The the mushrooms are the reason or the fungi are the reason. I I should, two things. One, I consume mushrooms only via eating them (laughs) and supplements. Okay. I don't want anyone to get anything. I do not take drugs. Don't believe in them. It would ruin my brain. It goes against my mind's program, but I do consume them every day. So that's one thing. Second thing is the journey in mushrooms was until HRV, probably the most interesting health rabbit hole I ever went down. And it led to a better understanding about when the asteroid hit the planet, what happened to all life on the planet? How did it start again? Why did the dinosaurs die? Why was fungi more prevalent? All of these things can be answered in a couple great documentaries. And so mushrooms is a very, very important part of my rabbit hole learning. Sultan, I have a very, very important question for you. Are porcini mushrooms closer to people than like button mushrooms? Honestly, I have no idea. Okay. I figured you, I, you don't, there was a chance that you would know that. No. I do know that they are genetically closer to humans than plants. I also do have this notion that the network of mycelia around our planet is a fundamental component of the digestive system of the planet. Right. So completely to, to, agree. Right. And I will not go down the Star Trek rabbit hole and assume one can travel across the universe using this network. However, the notion that a significant function of our planet is in itself a living organism, right? It has lungs, it has a digestive system, it has all the things that you would expect out of something that's alive. The interesting thing is that for the most part, people do not interact with mushrooms. They think it's a plant, they think it's something that you saute with a bunch of garlic and butter and put next to a steak if you just don't want to eat anything green. And they don't understand that it's a fundamentally different set of systems that impact the world and nutritionally we are very bad at understanding the nutritional or actual human impact of the things we eat. We're just terrible at it to your McDonald's point, Jordy, right? Eat some mushrooms every day. It's way better than eating almost anything else. I do want to add. So when he says mycelia, so I want to first give a visual, first of all, for people listening, mushrooms are just the fruit. Okay. Fungi is the plant or the, let's say to use a visual, 
grapes for wine, and then the vines are the most important part. So when we talk about mushrooms, we're eating the fruit, but the most important part is the mycelium, which is under and is part of the entire thing. And the reason that it's kind of like the worldwide internet for plants. So if you're in a forest, the trees are communicating with each other. And so when I say that to people, they don't pay attention, they don't care. I'm like, well, go watch Fantastic Fungi or go watch How Fungi Saved the World, whatever documentary you want to watch. And you can learn more about it. Read about Paul Stamets. But the reality is, if I also say, how'd you make that decision? That was a gut instinct. Your gut told you to do it. There's some connection between your gut and your brain. Well, that's the same thing as the trees talking to each other, isn't it? And that's what the vagus nerve is. So after I read more about the vagus nerve, it directly related back to the research that I had heard on mycelium. And it was very interesting to me because I didn't have anything in my brain that said, how would trees talk to each other to give nutrients to each other to say, hey, there's something going on. So you hear trees are talking and you think you're on some bad episode of something written with Johnny Depp in it. In this case, (laughs) I don't really care about that, but I do care about the linkage between the gut instinct. And so when I said earlier about the vagus nerve, it's a two lane superhighway going in both directions from the brain to the gut and from the gut to the brain. And that is the truth between the vagus nerve and mycelium is the same thing. It's going from tree to tree. So you're saying that the mushrooms are the go-betweens. The trees in the forest. The fungi. The fungi, sorry. Yes. The fungies are the connective tissue that enables the trees to, quote unquote, They're talk connected to, to all other. the roots and everything. Mm. Think of it as the tree's roots are like the organs of the body. Yeah. And you could argue that the mycelia are the central nervous system. Exactly. Yeah. To just add an additional layer to this already mind-blowing <laughs> conversation, why not bring in crypto into the equation here? Why not? <laughs> Let's go. Let's talk about the intersection of longevity and crypto. And Jordy, we have to remember that we are here with a person who up until recently was an important federal regulator of our financial system and had to wrestle with this. So I'm going to first hand it off to you, Sultan. Is there any way in which longevity and crypto slash Web3 can converge in your mind? Of course. I mean, it is a natural place. So it's important to remember that Web3 is far closer to the original thesis of the internet than what we've been dealing with for the last two decades. So I look at the decentralized nature of owning your own data, owning your own transactions, owning your own digital assets as a far, far more appropriate way of thinking about Web3 and crypto, right? The fundamentally it's saying, unlike the mainframes of the 70s and 80s or the cloud of the 2000s and 2010s, where it's owned by a big corporation, you have to pay for access to it, et cetera, et cetera. This is the notion that I can, on my own infrastructure, in my own life, control these things. And when we talk about longevity, the only way to actually have a meaningful quantitative impact to your longevity, as Jordy and I have done, is to adopt the philosophical baseline that is crypto and Web3, which is I own my own data, I own my own tools, I apply my own algorithms to it, I apply my own data capture technology to it. It is me owning my own data. Now, if I were to draw a parallel with the current financial system, it would be like holding a wad of 20s in my pocket versus relying on some card or some bank or something like that. Now, it is very clear, and we're here in February of 2023, on week six of Operation Choke Point 2, where my former colleagues are 
going out of their way to remove crypto from the regulated financial markets. Can you just give a few more sentences on that reference operation choke point? So 15 years ago, there was a concerted effort by federal regulators to, in essence, build walls around what I would call the legacy financial services system, whether it's the markets or the banks, to keep that system as static as possible under the guise of keeping it as safe and sound as possible. And that phrase is meaningful to federal regulators. Safety and soundness is a big deal. Whether or not they're actually doing it is a separate question for a different podcast, but that is what it was back in there. And they used a lot of authorities to examine and enforce behaviors in the regulated markets that did not go through Congress. This was simply a, we've decided this and you have to fight us in court if you don't want to conform to it. And for the most part, anyone that bought them lost. Over the last six weeks, basically, the SEC, Federal Reserve, OCC, FDIC, the chicken soup of all of the acronymed agencies have been going down and just one by one cutting off access from the crypto markets to the financial system of the United States. They started with the banking system. Now they're working through the markets and they're basically walking down every single thing that they can find an avenue into, whether it's a statutory change or a you're working with somebody we don't like or you've put a comma in the wrong place or you had a temporary application that we honored under one leadership and now under a different leadership, we're going to rescind it for you or we're not going to just sign you up. One organization signed up for something at the Federal Reserve, which had a normal response time of five days and 26 months later, I believe, is where they are now. They have not gotten a response. You know, that's what's happening. And so as we think about getting back to the longevity side of this conversation, crypto is going to evolve in two directions. One is laterally across different use cases. And so using Web3 technologies for healthcare is a very straightforward thing. I mean, we're already doing it. Like I do not have a relationship with a major vendor, whether it's my health insurance company or a tech company or anything like that to store all my healthcare data that we've been talking about for this podcast that is on my infrastructure in my environment, right? Decentralized. It's not on a blockchain because there just isn't a good blockchain tech yet out, but if there was, I would probably be using it. And then number two is this infrastructure of decentralization means that I've got five technical devices either on my body or next to my body. They are all communicating with each other. In some cases, they're talking to a cloud or something like that. But the primary value proposition is they're talking to each other and then I'm interacting with them. Right. And that is Web3. I have a couple things on this, but I want to read a quote because the first thing to me, and I, this just came up as you asked the question, I hadn't, hadn't thought about it, but this gets into the type of people that I see in longevity. Okay. And I see in crypto, meaning people that believe on living to 200, they are viewed as crazy people by the medical community at this point. And people in any kind of the fiat world that crypto, they believe it's a bubble. And so Steve Jobs wrote, here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs and the square holes, the ones who see things differently. They're not fond of rules and they have no respect for the status quo. I can't think of two more status quo parts of our society than anything related to money and wealth and the healthcare system. So I think the people that are involved in them, there's a synergy that goes where it's driving a lot of the technology people that have already seen the benefits of Web 2.0 and 1.0 to Web 3.0 and to longevity. They are both moving that direction. And the second thing outside of that is I traveled to the University of Pennsylvania with George Weiss one weekend and I asked to go out there with him because I wanted to go to the nanotechnology department. And I wanted to meet with some of the students. I wanted to ask questions. George didn't go with me on that part. He went to a cancer meeting because Penn is at the time and still is one of the leading universities for 
cancer research. And I happened to join him for a meeting after I was done in the nanotechnology building. And he wanted me to be there just to listen to what was going on. And this was a combination of scientists, researchers, George, and then I forget what the, what's the main cancer charity stand up for cancer. So all the groups were represented and I was just there to listen. And what I remember was the inefficiency of the amount of dollars that were flowing into for cancer but then how it was being distributed. And I view this as peer-to-peer funding, which makes more sense for like a GoFunding type thing of crypto, that if you've got, hey, I've got some research being done on this particular cancer, is Stand Up to Cancer better to send money out? Or is it the people who care so much about this because they have a family member, they've spent time on it, they've done tons of work, and they want to donate to this because it seems like something in there? I just think peer-to-peer funding is going to become an important part of the crypto and longevity side, that as these ideas are coming out more, there will be more direct funding as opposed to just giving it to a charity than then it has to go out and hand it out, which I found is very inefficient personally. Sultan, can you talk about who Mad Dog Hall is and why? he is relevant to what Jordy has described as this concept of DSI? Well, it's funny. So Mad Dog, man, I remember the first time I sat with him at Los Alamos like 30 years ago, and it was when we were talking about designing a lot of the protocols for the internet, so HTTP and stuff like that. He's a, an old wizard, we used to call him, you know, a Gandalf-type character in the early days of the internet. But he was a, a violent, decentralized voice. He did not want centralization because he came out of the IBM mainframe infrastructure, which has just been recreated by Google, Amazon, and Microsoft with their clouds. And his view was you should be able to do anything on a node on the internet equally. It doesn't matter if you're doing it, you know, your phone, we didn't have phones back then, but it's like, and he was the one who actually, if memory serves, said the first web browser should also be the first web server. The same thing that you are running should be able to do both. And I don't know if you guys know this, but like the early web infrastructure, that was it. You had a web server and a web client on the same device. And so just think about how you would translate that into the web three notion of a node, right? You've got your own node and I can choose which protocols to attach to. I can bridge to whatever chain I want to, et cetera, et cetera, right? It is a direct parallel. We just have way better technology now than we did back then. And I could you know, using G3, the laptop you have in front of you right now, which is more powerful than the supercomputer I was doing my original AI research on, by the way, I just want to highlight that. I could create a node, a new chain, a whole infrastructure for longevity that strictly became a data sharing platform to allow us to create decentralized clinical trials, decentralized funding mechanisms for new research, all of that. And that's where I think this final little cherry on top of the Web3 conversation goes. We are going to be at a moment where citizen technologists, just like they've been doing with insulin, where people are making their own insulin at home, which is an incredibly easy thing to do, by the way. And if you haven't done it, I highly recommend doing it just for the experiment. It's going to make your garage smell, but you should do it once because it's basically just brewing beer. Um, (laughs) It smells, though. Do that because you need to understand that as we go through these processes, you can't just wait to react to something when the solution is a pill or whatever you see advertised on TV now for some esoteric disease that they can't even say because of the pretzeling of the regulatory system we've had to do, right? We have to get to a point where we're taking control over this and the best and easiest way to do this can take control of our own data. I have a lot to say here, but I think we're going to move on to the last topic. 
which is an important topic and we have not yet addressed and the implications for all of these trends related to longevity, health and AI on the American economy and on the markets. Jordi, I know you have been asked this question numerous times when you talk about health span, when you talk about all of the things that you are doing personally, what are the investment themes, if any, that will emanate from the convergence of AI and health? Well, one thing right off the bat, and we haven't really talked about it, and this is focused again on artificial intelligence and longevity and some of the things we're learning. We didn't get into the technologies that are happening at the same time. We briefly did with messenger RNA, but you've got CRISPR. You have a lot of other things which are going to extend longevity. So this was really focused on the AI side, but to get now to just, okay, let's assume people do live a lot longer. For the next five to 10 years, just because of how many people are unhealthy, it's really hard to imagine them because of money and a whole bunch of things, all of a sudden getting healthier, which means they're going to live longer because we are going to have earlier detection. We are going to have things that allow us to find things and kind of do the Peter Atia mode, which is, oh, your blood pressure is here. Your magnesium levels are here. We're going to know this stuff in a real time basis, probably in the next five to 10 years. But that's not going to really do much except extend people's lives. It's not going to make them healthier necessarily. And that means they're not going to be able to go back to work. And what I always say with the labor shortage is people say it, but they don't actually think what it means. So, yes, we're going to have higher inflation because wage inflation is going to be higher because you just don't have enough people. And the easiest way to do this is right now there's about 10,000 people that die every year. And there's also about 10,000 people that are basically born. We're kind of at a static thing. Without immigration, our population you, wait, is... You, a net 10,000 or when you say 10,000 no, 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 people... No, no, 10,000 people die every day and about 10,000 oh, people every enter day. the workforce or enter the age of this. So we're kind of at this status, that the static thing theoretically. But the problem is... Health span ends at about 66. Retirement now for a lot of people in the country is 67. So if you go through the math and you go, well, as people get older, if they're unhealthy, how many people does it take to take care of them from a healthcare perspective? So let's assume it's a quarter of a person just to make a number. That person can't work. And then now they're taking a quarter of the people to take care of them. You have a labor shortage. And that's why jobs in the healthcare sector just continue to go higher. And it's very hard for AI to replace the nurses and the people out there. It's just, it's not easy at this point. Maybe in 10 years, we'll be there, but we're not there yet. And so for a period of time, the number one thing for the economy in general is that I think people have to think about, we're going to have a labor shortage for a period of time. And it's real that it started when the first baby boomer retired. So it's not just the retirement age, it's the health of the retirees, which prevents them from contributing to the economy anymore. That's the first thing. Yeah. Were you going to add something? No, I was just going to say, this is a significant issue and we're at a kind of a generational inflection point in terms of the number of people who are leaving the workforce, but then requiring more support for the 10 to 20 years, kind of depending that they go through that, right? And the labor shortage is not going away. In fact, if anything, if you look at the people that are entering the workforce versus the people that are leaving the workforce, we need more people of the kind that are leaving the workforce than necessarily what's getting put back in the workforce currently. Yeah. Right? And so not only is there a net zero there, it's actually a net negative because functional categories are getting disproportionately impacted. Are you implying that 21-year-olds entering the workforce behave like delicate snowflakes and they don't work as hard? Is that what you're saying? No, I'm saying that the <laughs> functional skill sets that come out when you're in your 20s and you're, actually, and you're entering the workforce versus somebody who's been in the workforce for 40 years in a very specific domain, like those aren't apple to apples. Gotcha. And 
the people that are entering the workforce are primarily digital in nature. They want to do different things. They want to get different jobs. They want to live a different lifestyle. And the people leaving the workforce have a very different view on that. And our economy is still reliant on that second category, the older workforce, more than it is the younger workforce. And they don't want to go into those fields, is your point. Doesn't yeah, seem and like it. Sultan gave everyone who's got kids, like right now I have three kids that have either are graduating college or already have Two of them will be in the mental illness side or the social work side. One of them is graduating to be an embryologist. And now for my son, he's getting into computer science and he's getting into coding. But I'm going to say, hey, genetic counselor seems like a better place. Sultan just told me, no matter where you go, the healthcare side is where your kids uh, want to be for sure. You'll make way more money as a genetic counselor than in any of the other things you just talked about, like far more. And I will just say, you know, as a college professor, over 75% of my students, I teach graduate either business or computer science, depending on the semester. I will tell you over 75% of my students are Chinese or Asian of some variety. I have not had an American citizen in one of my students. And I teach everything from AI for risk modeling for financial system. I'm teaching cybersecurity and Web3 right now, graduate computer science. I don't have any American citizens and I haven't in five years. Wow. All right. So besides genetic counselors... <laughs> Who wins and who loses from, well, they win. Who makes out well from this convergence, Jordy? So from a sector basis, we just exited a decade where mega cap technology companies effectively making software or kind of arbitraging the inefficiencies of buying things, of making hardware and all this stuff generated most of the market cap. As it is right now, I think Apple has a bigger market cap than the entire ETF for the biotech industry. Hmm. You're not going to be able to pick the winners and losers, in my opinion, the same way you did with the moats that were put around the mega cap technology names, which became evident halfway through the decade. But I do believe there will be moonshot winners that'll just keep popping out of places. And the industry and the dollars geared in the healthcare, about 22%, I think, of all expenditures in this country on an annual basis for consumers are in healthcare. And the number is supposed to grow. And so historically people have viewed this as do I buy pharma or do I buy biotech? I think there's going to be so many devices geared towards this. I have not bought a new iWatch for the last three years, I guess. And the reason why is because there's no new technology that really for me has improved that the apps have gotten better, but it still works. I still can do my EKG. I still can do my blood oxygen level until they start getting blood pressure or something else in there. I have no reason to buy another iWatch. So I'm making my decisions for myself based on healthcare. I have an aura ring. I bought a respirator machine. Almost every piece of hardware that I've purchased over the last four years is a device connected to creating more data or based on things I've learned about my health. So I think the health expenditures to being healthy, the cures, all of those things are going to accelerate and you want to stay on top of that part. So I think the winners are going to be the healthcare sector. Sultan? It's hard to disagree with Jordy and I certainly wouldn't on the market side of it, but I will say that the, I think you look at healthcare and I think you look at energy. Those are really the two that I get very excited about because everything Jordy said on healthcare, I agree with. I actually think we're going to have to reframe that market a little bit from reactive healthcare to proactive healthcare or something like that, because I think we're going to see a shift from reactive to proactive that's going to have to occur simply because we don't have the throughput and you'll see it in some of these bigger systems, you know, the KPs and, and people like that. Actually, and the reason I say that is you look at what the DOD is doing with and the VA is doing, they're getting far better about getting proactive on some of these things. Like you can now, if you're a former DOD, former military, you can go into onto any military base and go to their gym for free, hmm. right? which, you know, that, that wasn't true a while ago. And then on the energy side, we're getting 
fascinatingly close in the next five to 10 years to some more advanced systems, specifically around fusion. And I'm aware of at least two companies that I think are going to do some really amazing stuff, including, you know, solve some of our rare earth material issues, which is a significant supply chain concern as well as some other stuff. So I, I see energy as being really interesting. All right. Maybe for a future episode, we can dedicate it towards energy. Gentlemen, this has been a very mind-expanding discussion. I want to thank you both. But before I let you go, Sultan, where can people learn more about you and your thoughts on a number of topics? I am very easy to find on all of the socials with just my first and last name. Usually Twitter is the, is the anchor point there. Anything else you want to mention? Have me back in six months and we might have something really interesting to talk about. Okay. <laughs> actually, actually, I'll leave you with an anecdote if that's all right. Please. So I was talking to a former fairly senior guy in the U.S. intelligence community and I was talking that I was going to be on this podcast talking about longevity and he got this really kind of funny smile on his face and he's like, you know, it's interesting, you know, with all this talk of UFOs and these Chinese balloons, which is, you know, very much in the news right now. He's like, do you think it's ever occurred to anyone that maybe there are aliens and maybe they're just coming by like on cruise ships and this is like how they check <laughs> us out, you know? And then I immediately was like, well, but like you can't go faster than the speed of light. It would take forever to get here from the closest next solar system. And he's like, yeah, maybe they just solved longevity. Maybe they live to be a thousand years old and a 10 year journey out here is easy because it is the equivalent of three weeks of their life. And so I just wanted to say for all of those who are, who are skeptical that we just shot down a UFO over the Yukon or, or whatever, that maybe they were, maybe they were aliens and maybe the only thing they've actually solved is longevity. They haven't actually solved any faster than light space travel or anything. Like Jordy, do you have any final thoughts on aliens solving longevity? Yeah, I think everyone who thinks of aliens immediately has their vagus nerve send out a survival thing. Their heart rate goes up. Where I, on the other hand, am hoping there are aliens because they'll probably have information and rabbit holes that we haven't gone down yet. And they're a little yeah. far advanced. So if I think of aliens, if they've been able to reach us and actually communicate, they're way past the 35th grade. No, 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 no problem there. I'd like to learn from them. So, so, so this is another thing that Jordy and I have come to is we both are looking forward to the alien invasion. Exactly. I am. All right. On that note, gentlemen, assuming that the alien invasion doesn't occur within the next several months, look forward to doing this again. Avengers would have been very boring if they got along well. So just remember, there's a reason why it really worked well for you. Fair enough. Thanks, D3. Thanks, man. This podcast should not be reproduced, copied, distributed, or published in whole or in part. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only. The views expressed herein are subject to change without notice. Information in this podcast is based on data regarding current market conditions from sources believed to be reliable. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as investment, legal, tax, or other advice and should not be viewed as a recommendation to purchase or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. You should consult your own advisors regarding business, legal, tax, or other matters concerning investment. Any health-related information shared on this podcast is not intended as medical advice or for use in self-diagnosis or treatment. Please consult a qualified healthcare professional before acting upon any health-related information on this podcast. Please review related show notes for this podcast and visit 
www.gweiss.com to review related disclosures and learn more about Weiss.